chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21, page 1594, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. couple things as we turn to this passage in verse 33. There will be a, a, a name, well, actually two names that uh, are in the text that I read. You see in verse 33, the son of Ram, there is a lot of manuscript evidence that really the names should be Admin and Arni. So two names rather than uh, the one name there for, for Ram. So you'll hear me read that. So take a note of that. Most of the translations since 1984, when our NIV was published, have made uh, that change from the text, including the NIV, which has been published again since then. And then also, as I read the genealogy of Jesus, uh, it doesn't match up perfectly with the verse numbers. And so there are 11 lines of seven names, so 77 names in total. And I'm going to emphasize the last name of each line. So listen for that. I've always wondered what it would be like to preach a genealogy. So we get to do that uh, this week. And uh, I think it's probably easiest to start with Jesus' genealogies rather than going to the ones in uh, Numbers or something like that. So listen for that as we read this passage. This is God's word, holy, inspired, and infallible. Please give your attention to its reading. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Son of Heli, son of Methot, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadon, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua. The son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph. The son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin. The son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah. The son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch. The son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son 
of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it's natural for most of us to dislike being tested, being evaluated, job performance reviews, report cards, even the boss being present in the workplace are all things that have made most of us shudder at one time or another because we fear, many of us fear, that what we do is not good enough. Even perhaps worse than that is being part of a group that's being evaluated because you feel that you are even further removed from being in control. I remember being in middle school band and thinking that the value of my life was going to turn on what one judge said about the quality of our playing. And so, of course, I was paying attention to the mistakes that I heard everyone else making. Israel as a nation is one such group, evaluated and judged collectively. The one who has been appointed to judge them in the Gospel of Luke is John the Baptist, at least here in these passages we've been looking at recently. Through this simple passage, Luke paints a very clear picture for us as to the judgment that's upon Israel and how Jesus addresses this problem. What did John's baptism mean? What does John think about the people of Israel? Why is Jesus baptized by John? Why does Luke go to all of this trouble to trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to the first man who lived, Adam? All of these questions are good for us to bring to this, to this passage, and we'll explore a lot of them this morning. But it's important for us to understand that these things also bear upon us. Luke writes them not just for the people of Israel, even though it is they that are a part of this story, but since Luke shows Jesus' lineage going all the way back to Adam, he shows that Jesus is not just good news for Israel. He is good news for the world. That's what Jesus is. The good news for all the people of the earth. So first we turn to look at together the baptism of Jesus. Last week's passage we saw at the end that Herod put John the Baptist in prison. And so Luke goes backwards in time here slightly to be able to connect John to Jesus. It's a bit of a passing of the baton. John has been center stage for a couple of passages here, and now Jesus will become the main character for the duration of this gospel story. It's also important to understand that John has a specific purpose. His baptism and his message are for a certain time and a certain situation. John was baptizing in the Jordan River, and that harkens back to the history of Israel, who, as a people, went through the waters of the Jordan, into the promised land for the first time. But one of the things that John's baptism does is it reopens the question of the righteousness of the people of Israel. When they first entered the promised land, they went through the Jordan waters, and it was as if God was saying, you are clean enough to enter my rest, the land that I'm giving to you. But John brings them back to these same waters so that they may be evaluated and judged as to their righteousness. The first verse of our passage today says that all the people were being baptized. And Luke doesn't mean by that that every single person in the nation got baptized by John. But it does mean that John was evaluating them through his baptism collectively. It was a baptism of judgment. 
And how does Israel measure up? Not well, not at all. We can remember last week where John calls them a brood of vipers or children of snakes. And that was his judgment upon the people of Israel. And that's why he called them to repentance. Because they needed to be forgiven of their sins. This baptism of judgment exposed that. They have failed. Malachi chapter 4 is one of the passages that speaks of this one who would come before the Messiah. This one who would pave the way in the spirit of Elijah, which of course comes to be John the Baptist. Malachi 4 is one of the last passages in our Old Testament scriptures and was one of the last prophetic words that Israel heard as a people. And here is one, here, here's one of the things that we find in Malachi chapter 4. God says through the prophet, Remember the law of my servant Moses. This was the call upon the people of Israel. They had been judged for their sin. They had been exiled. And then they had come back to the land of Israel through the decree of Cyrus. People had started to come back. They rebuilt the temple. And what does God say to them? He says, remember the law of Moses. In other words, they were still under these laws and commandments that God had given to them through Moses. And these are the same commandments that they had already broken, that they had already failed to keep. And so in many ways, the situation was the same for Israel. So John the Baptist, through his baptism, looks at Israel collectively, and he gives them a solid F on their report card. Not just an F, perhaps even more, a zero percent Is Israel the only people that can come under the scrutiny of God like this? John's baptism was given for the people of that time. But what we know about Israel is that it is, in many ways, just a little picture of all of humanity. God calls his people and he brings them to the land and puts them under these commandments. And in many ways, Israel hearkens back to Adam's place in the Garden of Eden. And just as Adam disobeyed, Israel disobeyed. And so one of the things that we learn through Israel's ability to gain life through the law is that all people on earth are unable to gain life through the law of God. All people on earth could be subjected to John's declaration of, you brood of vipers, repent and seek the mercy of of God. And this should cause us to question, well, why is Jesus baptized then? Why does Jesus come under this baptism of judgment? Israel, of course, needed to be evaluated as to their faithfulness to keeping the commandments of Moses. But why is Jesus baptized by John? It's Jesus' way of identifying with the people of Israel. It's his way of showing he is going to become one with them. Surprising in light of all the things that Luke has said, isn't it? Luke has clued us in and even explicitly proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine, that he was born of a virgin. So it's a surprise us that Jesus would do something to identify himself with a corporate people who have been called guilty. But if we boil it down to what Jesus came to do, if we boil it down to the mission of his life, That's exactly what he came to do. Jesus opens himself up to the judgment. Jesus opens himself up to the curse that other people have brought into this world. And at the end of his life, Jesus will pray in John 17. 
He prays to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus did not have to open himself up to judgment, but he does. It's what the Father tasks him to do from all eternity, and willingly he does it. So Jesus submits to John's baptism. He takes the same test, comes under the same evaluation as his people. Surprising also when we think about what John the Baptist has just said about Jesus. He will come with a winnowing fork in his hand and the axe is laid to the root of every tree. He was coming to exercise judgment. But the first thing we see in the next passage is that Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And that's why in the Gospel of Matthew, John protests. You remember that in Matthew 3? John says, I need to be baptized by you. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. But Jesus says, this must be done, why? To fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to fulfill all the things that the Father has tasked him to do, that he might bring righteousness to the world. He submits to the test of Israel. Israel was told, do this and you will live. You will receive the blessings of God. Jesus comes under the same test, that he might give life He might give it to the full, and he will remain under this test until his ultimate test of faithfulness will be at the cross. John has given his announcement to the people, and he has called the people of Israel guilty. And so we get an initial verdict on Jesus as well. We see it and we hear it in this text for us. First, we see it. We see it as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of, of a dove. There are two things to notice about this dove form that descends upon Jesus. The first is that it is an anointing by the Holy Spirit, and the second is that it points us to the idea of sacrifice, an anointing, and it points us to the idea of sacrifice. First, then, is that this is an anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is connected to the idea of new creation, God creating new things. It harkens back to different places in the Old Testament. One of the most obvious is Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And out of the darkness there, God speaks life out of nothing. God creates new life out of nothing. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and the Holy Spirit is present there in creation, just as the Holy Spirit is present here. Descends upon Jesus to send the signal that there is going to be new creation life that comes through the ministry of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit descends as the Father looks on from heaven, and Jesus is there praying just after he has been baptized. And this is such a rare and a special glimpse into the relationships of the three persons of the Trinity. The Son submitting to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father onto the Son, and anointing Jesus with the power for his task at hand. It's a beautiful picture and a rare glimpse. And it's cases like this in Scripture where Christians really ought to camp out if they want to get practical help for their lives. And so often we come to God's word and we say, okay, I've got, I've got the head knowledge. I've been taught what this text means. And so now how do I connect it to the work of my hands? I know my head is grasping it, but how does it connect to my hands? 
Most people think that that is how Christian formation and discipleship works. Learn something in your head, and then it goes forth into your hands. But that misses a critical step. It is not just the head and the hands that form us into disciples of Christ, into servants of Christ. It is head and heart and hands. And how is our heart formed? And what happens when our heart is being formed by the triune God? When the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can shape our desires. When he teaches us through his word and then through his work in his word shapes our desires, the desires of our heart. That is when our faithful obedience, our service pours forth into the works of our hands. Head, heart, and hands. And it is passages like this where that kind of thing happens. Where we camp out and say... Jesus came to submit to the judgment of the Father. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus to anoint him, to empower him for the work that was at hand. The Father looked on, and this was all part of the plan that was from eternity past to accomplish redemption, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for you and for me, working together, knowing that, And thinking on that, that is how our hearts are formed to pour forth into our lives. Head, heart, and hands working together. That is how spiritual formation happens. That God shapes our affections to the truths of his word. And so this this descent of the Holy Spirit is an anointing. It also points us to the idea of sacrifice. The word for dove is actually the word for pigeon. And it shows up in chapter 2 of Luke. You remember when Joseph and Mary go to the temple. They can't afford a lamb for the sacrifice. And so they buy two pigeons. It's the same word here. And that's used in the Old Testament for sacrifice. Because pigeons were, were seen as pure and undefiled. And Jesus is clean and pure and undefiled. And it points us forward to the idea that he will be the perfect sacrifice for his people. Not only is there this visual affirmation given, as, as we see the Spirit descend upon Jesus in this passage, there is a, a very clear sign that Jesus is not guilty like the people of Israel are, right? John says that the people are guilty, but immediately when Jesus comes under John's baptism, there is this blessing that descends from heaven. Not only is it a visual blessing, but it is audible as well, because God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Once again, we are taken back to several places in the Old Testament. We are taken back to see that the son of God in the Old Testament is often the way that Israel is is described. Hosea 11 chapter 1 Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 says this When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son God loved his people as a father loves his son Is God pleased with his son Israel Was God pleased with their obedience Hosea 11 verse 2 says this But the more I summoned them The more they departed from me, they sacrificed to the Baal idols and burned incense to images. The point is this, that God could not look upon his son, Israel, and say, I am well pleased with you. That which Jesus is told 
is exactly that which Israel could not have heard the Father declare from heaven. He could not say, I am well pleased with you, my son. Not only is Israel collectively called the Son of God, but also the King of Israel is specifically called the Son of God. Psalm 2 is one of the clearest examples of this, and it shows that God protects the King of Israel in a special way. Psalm 2 says this, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's the king. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have put my king on Zion, my holy hill. God protects and preserves the king of Israel and cares for him as a son. And it gives way to a very famous verse in Psalm 2, which says this, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But of course we know that in the throne of Israel, God did not find a faithful king. Just as he did not find a faithful son collectively, he did not find a faithful son in the king of Israel. What do we learn about Jesus here? That Jesus is standing as a representative for all the people of Israel. And that he is also standing as a true king of God's people. But we also see, of course, in the fact that Jesus is getting baptized by John the Baptist. We also see his willingness to come under judgment. To go on trial. To be a pure sacrifice like an unspotted lamb or a clean pigeon. Romans 8 picks up on this, how redemption is accomplished this way through Christ. The Apostle Paul references where Abraham and Isaac go up on the mountain and Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his firstborn, his beloved, his son. And of course, we know as Abraham is just about to do it, God provides a substitute sacrifice by giving Abraham a ram that was caught in the thicket. But Paul reflects back on this. And he says that just as Abraham's son was spared, he says that God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he then not with him freely give us all things? Think about it. An obedient son, an obedient king, a perfect high priest who gives himself as the sacrifice. This is our salvation. He was given the declaration, Jesus was given the declaration as he comes to be baptized by John. A different declaration than the people of Israel heard. A different verdict, a different report, a different grade on his report card than anyone in the history of the world would have ever heard. God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it is at that moment that we see him willing to come under the judgment of God. Willing to go through the same test of Israel. This is what salvation is all about. It comes about not only because God is merciful and compassionate and kind and gave up his son for all of us, but also because he is mighty, because he is strong enough, because he is powerful enough to orchestrate all of human history to execute his glorious salvation. And the last point that we see there is what we see in the genealogy of Jesus. 
Genealogies happen often throughout the Bible. Often we pass over them and we just uh, say, okay, it's, it's names and we have to do a lot of work to try to find out what the names mean. They're really a, a separate genre in literary style. One of my favorite preachers has said, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then each name in a genealogy is worth a hundred stories. And so as we close this morning, just a few quick observations from this genealogy to bring out the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. First, we must notice where the genealogy is in this gospel. It's directly after the baptism of Jesus and directly after the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God who is pleasing in the sight of God. Commentators, many of them who don't believe in the authority of the Scriptures, think that it is poorly placed. Luke did a bad job, or whoever was writing it, maybe they don't think Luke was writing it, think that it is poorly placed, it's awkward, it shouldn't be here. But of course they are wrong. It is perfectly placed. Luke does this to show that Jesus is not just the Son of God by virtue of his being divine. He shows us that Jesus is the Son of God in a human sense, that his humanity is connected to the humanity of the first man, Adam. That is why Luke traces the origins of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Adam was created in the image of God and in the likeness of God. He is called in this genealogy the Son of God because he was to reflect the holiness and the justice and the kingship and the reign of God. But he failed. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians the second or the last Adam. Why? Because where Adam failed in his call, Jesus will succeed. God calling Jesus his beloved son is the verdict that the first Adam never heard. The verdict that He never heard. That is why Luke goes to all of this pain to trace Jesus' origins all the way back to Adam. Because he is the last Adam. We should also take brief note of the way that Luke has compiled this genealogy. As I mentioned, there are 77 names that are contained in 11 lines. Seven names for each line. 11 lines, 77 names. And with this perfect structure, Luke emphasizes the last name in each line. I don't know if you heard it when I was reading. We don't, we don't recognize many of the names in the genealogy, but many of the last names we do. That's where we see names like David, Abraham, Enoch, God. Shealtiel is perhaps not famous by biblical standards, but he ends the third line, and that gets us from Jesus to the exile. And then three more lines gets us from the exile to King David. And just quickly as we close, one thing that i just like to point out is that between Shealtiel and David, the exile and the kingship, none of those names are people that we know anything about in biblical history. If you compare this with Matthew's genealogy, you will recognize all of the names because Matthew names nothing but kings. But the names that Luke uses are names that we don't recognize at all. He uses zero kings between David and Shealtiel. Why? He did it to show that Jesus was not going to be like all of those other kings. Those other kings in Israel angered the Lord by straying from him. 
But just as Jesus came to right the wrongs of Adam, he came to be an obedient king, which Israel had never had before. And he also does it to show that God's salvation in Christ is not something that's reserved for the noble. It's not something that's reserved for the elite, not of Rome or even of Israel. The salvation of Christ is for the people that time forgets. That's who Jesus extends his gospel to. The lowly, the humble, not the kings, but the peasants. That is what the gospel comes to proclaim to us. It's for people that are not impressive in the world's eyes, and they know that they are that way. I began this morning by saying that none of us like to be evaluated or take hard tests or get report cards or have to be told that we need to do better. But what happens in Jesus Christ is like this. It's as if we're walking home. Imagine being a young child walking home with a report card of all failing grades. And we know that when we get home, there's going to be trouble. Every class... Every grade is an F. And it's as if Jesus meets us on our way home just before we meet the wrath of our parents and says, Here, take my report card home. It's straight A's, all perfect marks. I'll take yours and I'll bear the punishment for it. That's what this story reminds us of. Israel comes under this evaluation of John the Baptist's baptism. And John says they are guilty. Jesus comes under it in their wake to keep the law for them. Every point of God's law, every commandment that Moses ever gave, Jesus kept it for you and he kept it for me that we might be accounted as righteous in the sight of God. May God form the desires of our hearts to glorify him because of the great salvation that we have from the one who did not spare his own son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, praise, and adoration. You are a good God. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for not sparing your own son, but giving him up for us all. And we say, how will you not then with him Freely give us all things. May you be honored and glorified in this place through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us respond in song by singing the first and the last verses of number 370.